Welcome to Pastors of the Roundtable. We uh, hope you're doing well uh, this week. Thank you for joining us. Um, this is the uh, week, of course, after we hope the Bengals have won the Super Bowl and um, put uh, gotten uh, the Rams defeated. This is the Pastors of the Roundtable. This is the Discipleship Podcast of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MNBC in Monroe, Michigan. Uh, together we encourage thoughtful discussion about the Christian faith and connect you to the people and the ministries of MNBC. <clears throat> Sitting around the table with me is Dave Arnold, Scott Slater, Tim Ikoangeli, and I'm Spencer Snow. We are here this uh, week getting ready to wrap up our time looking at various uh, Christian denominations and traditions. Um, last week we looked at Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, this week we're going to talk about Pentecostalism and charismatics um guys how are you doing today good just ate lunch good yeah yeah and we're all we're all full so um first day on the job first day on the job had jimmy john's can't get better than that's that's a good way to start good way to start your work i think now if we can um and and we learned about the jimmy john's app as well um no you didn't because you made fun of it I, I got a thing. The girl gave me something to text my email to. She gave you her phone number? I know. I'm like, Spencer just got that girl's phone number. <laughs> no. What are you doing? <laughs> he slowly hid it in the bag so none of us would see it. Bunch of jerks. I'll tell you what. No, she said if you send your email to this number right here, you can get a free Jimmy John sandwich, and then you get one on your birthday. And Anyway, you get points. Okay. Do you have to have an internet-enabled phone? To do that? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I mean, if not, there's, I'm sure, alternative ways to access that. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to talk about Pentecostalism um, today um, and the charismatic uh, movements. Um, uh, this is kind of the uh, the last tradition we're going to look at. Um, like last week when we talked about Seventh-day Adventism, one of the things that you notice between um, Seventh-day Adventism and uh, Pentecostals is that both of these movements very much so are American movements. They come and start in the United States of America, and they come out of the religious milieu that is um, the United States, especially in the 1800s and going into the early um, 1900s. So uh, a couple of things to keep in mind as we think about Pentecostalism and its history. And one of the things I think you, you learn as you study church history and you study um, what, what different groups teach and so on is you realize how much history actually plays a part in the development of doctrine, and the development of uh, groups, uh, particular religious beliefs. Um, and in a previous podcast, we had talked about how uh, Pentecostalism actually comes out of the holiness movement, which comes out of Methodism. Um, we talked about how uh, those things kind of have a, there's a chain of, of uh, a relationship between these various movements. And that's one of the things you, you notice is that Pentecostalism, first of all, it came about out of the holiness revival of the latter part of the 19th century, so the latter part of the 1800s. And and there there came about the idea here that you can be a Christian, the first work of grace, but there's a second work of grace where God will um, 
at a crisis moment or something, elevate you to such a high level of sanctification in your Christian life. Um, there eventually became books like this guy, Asa Hutchinson, or excuse me, not Asa Hutchinson, Asa Mahan, who was the actually at one time was the president of Adrian College, not too far away. He wrote a book here called Scripture Doctrine of Christian Perfection. Um, and I believe he worked at one time with Charles Finney. And Charles Finney also eventually became a perfectionist, believing in Christian perfectionism. Um, <clears throat> so uh, here, I'm going to actually read a quote here from the, this is from the Christian History Institute, their magazine uh, that you can see online for free. But they write this. Um, they write, in 1836, both Mahan, Asa Mahan, and Finney, Charles Finney, the famous revivalist, experienced second conversions that they identified as baptisms with the Holy Ghost. Mahan believed that as a result of this experience, his desires and inclinations had been purified so that he not only was free from committing sin, but no longer had a habitual tendency toward sin. Finney found in Mahan's teaching the solution to a troubling trend in his revivalistic work. Simply put, many of his converts were coming in the front door of revivalistic conversion and promptly backsliding out the exit. To the veteran evangelist, a robust doctrine of sanctification offered the assurance that the same grace received through faith that brought forgiveness of sin could bring a stable Christian life free from the habit of sin. So this idea came about that we can somehow live above all known sin, and, and even Mahan believed uh, getting rid of even the, ha the habit, the tendency to sin, you can live above that by God's help. Um, so this, this idea... Um, came came that was in the air and there was this idea that after you can be a christian but you need this second work of grace this second experience the second work of the spirit in your life that they called a baptism of the spirit to elevate you to the next level of christian experience well then it's not later uh, then it's a little later than in the 1800s that we come to this idea of the higher life movement, or sometimes it's called Keswick theology, or the victorious Christian life idea, which has the idea similarly, where there is a second work of grace where you are a, through a crisis experience that you move from being just simply a regular believer to being a spirit-filled victorious Christian believer, you move up to the second level of Christian experience. <clears throat> there was actually a book written by a guy named William Boardman who wrote the book, The Higher Christian Life, and also wrote a book called The Lord That Healeth Thee. Um, he uh, wrote and um, said this about healing eventually. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said, The one thing which we lack today is faith in the living God our Savior. He is with us, but now, as of old in Nazareth, he cannot do many mighty works because of our unbelief. He is here and there laying the hand of his power upon a few sick folk and healing them. But our unbelief so limits the Holy One that not a thousandth, no, not a millionth part of what he could do and would do if we had faith can be done. So all of a sudden, I think one of the things that's interesting is you're already starting to hear people say, you should be able to live above known sin, and also now, Christ can heal you of your actual physical sins and illnesses if you only had faith. If you only had the faith to believe. Does this sound like something we're already hearing today in our day and age? I mean, you see it in seed form today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we see it 
in a lot of in a, a lot of uh, if you watch the TV, yeah, it's probably where you, you know, I mean you'll see it with right. preachers on on TV. Definitely, you hear that quite a bit. Sad because it puts a, a heavy weight on people's shoulders. Right, right. This idea that I've got to through my faith somehow elevate my Christian um, experience. And, and you know it's interesting, J.I. Packer. You know when he was in Oxford. He was wrestling with this because the holiness movement was really strong, mm. out of, obviously, in England. And he felt like he never could get it, kind of get it mm. right, and to the point where he was very depressed until he came across John Owen's work on dealing with huh. indwelling sin. Hmm. And that, ho- that changed the whole trajectory of his life because he realized, wait a second, there's not this level, this plateau that I, you can reach. It's, you know, it's not... It's not there. It's not in Scripture. You know, right. Rather, it's dealing with the undwelling sin, the mortification of mm-hmm. sin, is what we would say. So that was interesting because he was in that in the 50s or mm. 40s, whenever he yeah. was in Oxford. <clears throat> he was in that kind of cloud of confusion of this whole idea, you can reach this Christian perfectionism. Right, right. Yeah, and it, it definitely would produce a depression if you don't feel like you can, mm-hmm. or, or a pride if you feel like you do reach it. Mm-hmm. So eventually people, even like D.L. Moody, um, would claim to have experienced the second work of grace, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, a guy named like R.A. Torrey, where you have at a Biola College, you have the Torrey Honors Institute, I think, right? Um, also taught this idea that a baptism of the Holy Spirit is a experience that's a second work of grace that, that you need to, that you, it is available to you and you need to pursue it. Until eventually we get to a guy like A.B. Simpson, Albert Benjamin Simpson, um, who was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance and actually wrote a book called The Gospel of Healing and the Fourfold Gospel. Um, So in this fourfold gospel, he starts to present Jesus as sanctifier, a savior, sanctifier, healer, and coming Lord. Um, And so you have this, this is in the water where people are starting to talk about there's a second level of Christian experience that is available to you if you only have faith. If you will only have faith, you can live above sin. You can be empowered for ministry in powerful new ways. There's this whole untapped resource, the second level of the Christian life, that if you have faith and you do the right things or somehow you can access this, you can get healing, you can be sanctified, you can be saved. Um, and so the bottom ladder, the bottom rung, so to speak, is just having Jesus as your Savior. But if you keep climbing the ladder, you can have more and more of him um, in unique and, and supposedly powerful ways. Mm. So um, eventually, though, this idea of the twofold Christian life where you've got the second, the bottom level, and then you can uh, jump to a second tier comes around now whenever we talk about the origins now of Pentecostalism. There's a guy named Charles F. Parham. He is the founder of the Apostolic Faith Movement. Um, He's born in Iowa, becomes a preacher, and is um, eventually starts this thing called Bethel Healing House in Topeka, Kansas in 1898. This is a divine healing home. Again, remember, he's teaching this fourfold gospel that A.B. Simpson's talking about, Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming Lord. Um, there's a book called The Life of Charles F. Parham. It's, uh, his wife is Sarah Parham. She's the, there you can look at this online, and she says this, We taught salvation, 
healing, sanctification, the second coming of Christ, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, although we had not then received the evidence of speaking in other tongues, as we did later in the College of Bethel. So he's already embracing this fourfold idea that Jesus is my healer and my sanctifier. He's pursuing these things. I think I've even read that at one time he um, got rid of all of his medicines or something or was opposed to it because he was embracing the idea of the gospel of healing, Mm -hmm. that God would heal you miraculously. He um, publishes this thing called the Apostolic Faith, this newsletter. But then in October of 1900, at Bethel Bible School, this thing, they have an experience, the latter reign or the restoration of Pentecostal power. And they write this, in December of 1900, we had our examination on this, upon the subject, repentance, conversion, consecration, sanctification, healing, and the soon coming of the Lord. We had reached in our studies a problem. What about the second chapter of Acts? So they're trying to deal with the second chapter of Acts, and eventually they say this, um, Sister Agnes in Osman asked that hands might be laid upon her to receive the Holy Spirit as she hoped to go to foreign fields. At first I refused, not having the experience myself. Then being further pressed to do it humbly in the name of Jesus, I laid my hand upon her hand, I'm assuming head actually, and prayed. I had scarcely repeated three dozen sentences when a glory fell upon her, a halo seemed to surround her head and face, and she began speaking in the Chinese language and was unable to speak English for three days. When she tried to write in English and to tell us of her experience, she wrote the Chinese, copies of which we still have in newsletter papers printed at that time. So they interpreted this as the latter rain experience, the pouring out of God's spirit in new Pentecostal power. It's also interesting to note, they thought she was actually talking in Chinese. This was no prayer language. They thought she was actually talking in another language. That's the way they interpreted Acts chapter 2 initially, Mm -hmm. which is different from modern-day Pentecostalism or charismatics or continuationists, which don't have that idea that that's necessary for, that you can speak in a prayer language that's unique um, or different. So it's very interesting to note right away that they thought this was Chinese, and they also thought this was, um, <clears throat> notice also she was hoping to go to foreign fields. And I think that initially there was this hope that by using these this Pentecostal empowerment that they would really be able to take the gospel to the nations to really do mission work, just like mm-hmm. in Acts 2. Right. Um so eventually, and I know I'm talking a lot here, but it's very interesting history. Eventually he goes and starts teaching this doctrine that speaking in tongues is actually the initial evidence of getting the baptism of the Spirit. So before, people had thought, yeah, there's this second work of grace, but how do you know you've got it? And Charles Parham starts to teach, you know it because you speak in tongues. This is the initial evidence that you have received this. He eventually teaches this in Houston, which, where he comes into contact with a uh, guy named William J. Seymour, who is an African-American, and um, Parham, who was, um, sad to say, a genuine racist and a white supremacist. Um, I think I've even read that he would not allow William Seymour into the classroom, had him sit out in the hallway um, to hear, but William Seymour was, was interested in what Parham was teaching, um, and so was listening, and it seems like at least embraced the idea that the speaking in tongues, this Pentecostal idea, at least embraced this, this uh, doctrine, truth. 
um, uh, and, and learned it from Parham, and he would eventually go and start preaching, and, and eventually a revival would break out called the Azusa Street Revival, which is where Pentecostalism today, modern Pentecostalism, that's kind of the explosion point where this goes not only national but international and worldwide. But what's interesting is Parham, the guy who first came up with this idea that the tongues are the initial evidence of of the baptism of the Spirit, he himself would write later on, two-thirds of this tongue stuff is not Pentecost. The counterfeits have no real languages, and fleshly controls of spiritualistic origin have destroyed their soul-saving power. So the guy that started the, doc- the Pentecostal doctrine of uh, the initial evidence that speaking in tongues is the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit would later on say, two-thirds of the Pentecostal stuff that you see is not real, which is interesting that that's how he, he, he himself interpreted. But later on, um, and this is the last little bit that we'll talk about here, but um, William Seymour goes to L.A., uh, this African-American guy, uh, preacher who goes, he ministers there, and eventually there's the Azusa Street Revival, where there again is speaking in tongues. Uh, this movement becomes international. This is kind of the time whenever this this uh, doctrine, this Pentecostal uh, reality and teaching goes international and explodes um, not only across the nation, but across the uh, world. Um, yeah. So, so Parham, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Charles Par- Parham. Charles Parham. So he lived to a point where he was saying, essentially that the people who were following in his footsteps were he did not see as legitimate. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, at least at the very fit. Yeah, he says two-thirds of this tongue, tongue stuff is not Pentecost. Hmm. And it's interesting, too. He says the counterfeits have no real languages. So in his mind, it was not Pentecostal power if there wasn't really languages being spoken. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's, that's helpful for Pentecostals and Charismatics and Continuationists to grasp that initially people didn't have this idea of a prayer language. That was a later, some, I, I don't know when that interpretation started, but I'm just saying initially at least he thought this is a real language that you can understand and maybe... Or that somebody... Can somebody understand. can understand yeah. it's a it's a known language yeah a real language um yeah of sorts well eventually pentecostalism goes global and i got i thought these were really helpful uh, a guy named robert godfrey who teaches has a whole church history lecture series on ligonier has uh, some stuff on pentecostalism on his lectures and he has these f- these five reasons about why pentecostalism is attractive um he says, first of all, Pentecostals believe they are biblical. They really believe it. They're sincere in trying to practice the biblical faith. Second of all, he says, they preach clearly and simply. So they've been able to reach to the blue-collar and the poorer individuals, um, and their message is very easily understood. Thirdly, Pentecostals know that God is present in felt, observable, and powerful expressions. So a Pentecostal service involves speaking in tongues. It may, it may involve healing. It may involve prophecy. Um, all of those are felt, um, tangible, observable, powerful ways that people can feel God is here. Um, fourthly, Pentecostal churches are active communities because in their services, there's audience participation, um, and I think he points out that modern-day people don't simply want to go to church to listen to something. 
They want to participate and be active participants. And so Pentecostal churches offer the opportunity to be very active in the worship service in various ways. Fifthly, he says, Pentecostals are culturally relevant, and especially in regards to music, that they're able to take the musical forms of the day and be relevant and uh, to the communities around them and to the culture around them. So I guess before we, I mean, a lot of us know a lot of what the, what Pentecostals uh, teach and you can see some of the basic things uh, from history already. Um, what do you think about Robert Godfrey's statements about why he thinks Pentecostalism is attractive? Do you think that they are, do you see those as being like, do you agree with his observations? Um, uh, you know, and and how would you diagnose it as well? I I would agree from the standpoint of like what he's saying. <clears throat> excuse me, that the idea of presence and feltness and expression, because we live in a very cult uh, entertainment culture and a very sensory culture. Mm-hmm. And I think what Pentecostalism does it, it taps into that. I mean, you listen to, you know the. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the the modern worship expressions, you know, and it's like, it's the, the tendency is to really, to, to want to feel it, you know, it's that, it's the, the rise of the tonality mm. and the, the sendo, descending down, you know, it's this idea of creating a, a, uh, a sensory type of mm. experience. And I think Pentecostalism taps into that and people are drawn to that because we go into the shopping mall, we go to wherever and our senses are all mm-hmm. bombarded. So I think he I think he's right. I think he's got a good a good pulse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are are there many liberal Pentecostal denominations or groups? Um, um, not that I mean, if you're talking like just socially liberal, no, theologically liberal. Well, I mean, there would be like the uh, United Pentecostal Church, which would be not a Christian denomination because they deny the Trinity. Um, but um, like I just t- always. Go ahead. I just always, uh, I guess, assume that people, when they were considering or thinking about Pentecostal churches, they're always kind of considered or understood to be more conservative uh, in their theology mm-hmm. uh, because they do, like, they, they, they believe they're biblical. Like, mm-hmm. they try to, yeah. they present themselves as, like, we go to the Bible. Like, right. all these things we believe, look, it's right here in the right. Bible. Right. At least they point back to that. And so I've just always... Yeah thought that people had that understanding of that uh, the Pentecostal denominations are generally very conservative mm-hmm. theologically. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's right or well, not. I mean, many of them, I don't know, I, I've always thought, too, that many of them will have women pastors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about modern-day Pentecostalism and expressions, there's different versions of it. So, like, um, what's interesting is um, Parham lived in the general region or died actually in the general region where I'm from and the assemblies of God is about less than an hour from where I grew up, their headquarters and their college and their seminary. But Pentecostalism will take very different forms there. Well, you'll see <clears throat> much more conservative as far as dress and hairstyle mm-hmm. um, Pentecostals. Um, but then also you'll see Pentecostals take the form of like Hillsong. Um, or other movements like that, which would not be so, uh, we might not think of as 
conservative or fundamentalistic mm-hmm. so much. Like I've heard that the the with the uh, change of pastors at Hillsong Church, where Brian Houston is no longer the the pastor of the Hillsong Church, it's actually now a husband and wife pair, mm-hmm. which you see often in Pentecostal circles. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess it probably just depends. There's probably a wide swath. Mm. I've um, always took it this just from my experience, but a lot of Pentecostals are kind of quiet on some of that stuff <clears throat> when it comes to conservative, like the ones that uh, Spencer's mentioning there, like the Hill songs and the ones I feel like that are out in the media and are really trying to engage culture. They tend to be a little more hush hush on some of the more touchy theological issues or even the touchy cultural issues that the church would take a stand against or whatever. They tend to back away from that, from that question. Mm. I used to see it with uh, Carl Lentz, who was Hillsong in New York. They would, you know, he's he's with NBA players, he's with Justin Bieber, he's with all these celebrities, and they would ask him questions like about homosexuality and stuff. And on the record, he would always curtail. He would he wouldn't give a he wouldn't really want to give a statement about it. He said that's getting in a way in the way of my right. my real mission or what I'm doing. Um, and I, I feel like uh, Joel Steen's kind of that way too. He tries yeah. to. Mm-hmm to get around that stuff, to not answer those questions out of fear. But, and, that, and that's kind of what came to my mind too. You know, Pentecostals believe they're biblical. But Pentecostals <coughs> preach clearly and simply. I would have to agree with the simply mm-hmm. <coughs> from the Pentecostals I've heard. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple message of what they're saying, not, not a simple gospel or anything. It's, it's just simple. They're not going to dive deep into a passage. Uh, there's not a lot of order necessarily to their message. Mm-hmm. It's usually them jumping off of a message and then giving a very simple feel good or let's do this now type of type of talk that mm-hmm. is attractive to many people. I don't have to sit here and think deep. I don't have to sit here and struggle. I can leave with exactly what I should do or what I'm supposed to do or what I'm supposed to know now and feel good about or whatever and go. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's attractive. I think one of the things, too, you can learn is that – we also believe we're being biblical, yeah. or we should want to be. We also should want to preach clearly and, and simply, simple. yep. but not be simplistic. Mm-hmm. I would say, though, that some of the reason that they have such success in third world countries is the same reason gambling has such success, like we were talking about before, with those who are impoverished. Because mm-hmm. sure. you would ask someone, who, you know, they have no money, they have anything, but they're going to go buy a lottery ticket. It's like, why are you wasting your money on a lottery ticket? Because there's a chance. There's sure. a chance that this is going to hit and sure. it's going to change my life forever. And I think it's the same in the third world country. It's like there's a chance that that guy might touch me right. and everything's right. healed. Right. Yep. You and know I what think, I mean? Yeah. And, and yeah. so they, yeah. they thrive on that. Right. On that, on those things. And, and, I, and to be fair, right. You're talking especially about the prosperity gospel with health and wealth more so because there are, yeah. there are people that might be more assembly of God types mm-hmm. who would, still believe in divine healing, but they would not want to, they would, they would still preach the basic gospel of Christ saves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, We would obviously disagree with them on some of these other things, but, Mm -hmm. um, but I still think even the assembly of God's type people. Yeah. uh, There's a diversity there. That's all I'm just trying to say. Yeah. I don't think their attraction would be come here and we're going to heal you. But I think that in their teaching would say you might, you might. Well, Mm -hmm. there's definitely some along this line that, that is the attraction. Mm-hmm. Come here and be healed. Sure, but it's yeah, it's a like we've said with so many others. It's kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, right. Mixed you don't really bag. know what you're getting. 
Yeah. Right, yeah. right. You mm-hmm. have to listen. Mm-hmm. You have to be a good listener. What do you think about the, I mean, we talked already about that, but preach Pentecostals know that God is present in felt, observable, and powerful expressions. I mean, I would want to say the same thing, but I wouldn't list it how they list it after of tongues, healing, prophecy. You know, I would say, is God present and felt? Well, yeah, through the preaching and reading of his word, through the truth, but also through Lord's Supper, through baptism, as we see these things. It also makes it observable. I can see this right. is the things that God has given us, and we, we see the truth in it. I mean, even even uh, right now, we're in Ephesians, and we're talking about marriage, and part of marriage says this is a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Uh, Christian marriage is an observable way to see some truth. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? right. It's, it's observable. Right. Um, and then we do have expressions. We sing. We're told to sing. Right? We preach. Right, but the, the interesting thing though about Christianity is it's a very, it's very simple, and it's also um, we don't use we have a, just a couple of visible elements: water, bread, and a cup. Um, we're all about the invisible reality of the Word of God um, and the Holy Spirit. Um, I've, I think I don't know if it was Godfrey that said this, but I think this is an interesting thing where he said that. Um, Whenever you can think about this time too, right? What's happening at this time with the turn of the night into the 1900s is you've got all ideas coming about now where, well, how can you prove there's a God? And faith is coming into contact with modernity now. And we still face this today. Well, how do I know that my faith is real or how do I know that Jesus was real? And one of the things this does is allows you to say, well, look, I can obviously tell. Look, we're speaking in tongues. Look, there's prophecy going on. This becomes evidence for you that's easy to try to cling to as, yes, this is real. This is real. See, look, these miracles are happening. All this stuff is happening because what it almost starts to do is to eliminate the need for faith and confidence in an invisible word that I can't see, an invisible God that I can't see or touch with my hands. Um. And that's what Christianity is. It's faith in the things that are not seen. But by trying to make things seen and felt and heard and emotional, all those different things, we're trying to bridge the gap somehow, I think, between us and God in ways that God hasn't ordained, though. And that's the danger. That's the danger. We ha- and I think also we have to do a better job in Protestant church, church circles of helping people know what, where God is in the worship service. Because I think sometimes we've so emphasized the fact that it's us coming to God in the worship service and us offering something to him that we forgot that actually in the Bible, he's coming to us Mm -hmm. to speak to us, to address us. So every time the book is opened, God is speaking and present there. I mean, I think we need to also teach people that aspect as well. Sure. I think when we're talking about proof, you know, like you were saying, look, you can see it. I'm speaking in tongues over here. Prophesying is here. I think what the Bible tells us to point people to for proof is Jesus. Right. And that is our proof. And that's where it all stands is do you believe in the God man, Jesus, that he walked this earth, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again and that he ascended on high. Right. Right. And that's that's the proof we have is an empty grave. And and now people have tried to take that even farther. Let's find the grave. Let's make sure it's empty. Let's show everyone there's no bones here, right? And now, okay, now I believe because I see this empty tomb or whatever. This is the proof that we have, and it's all we have as Christians to proclaim. Right. I don't want right. to say, well, 
how do I know God's real? Look at me. Obviously, he's real. Look at me. Right. I'm talking in this in this tongue, or I'm prophesying. I'm doing this. How could I do this if God wasn't real? No, it's not me. It's right. this man, Jesus. Right. That's who it is. And the problem is, is people start to judge whether or not something is real by your experience. Yeah. I mean, you think about that song, right? <clears throat> you ask me how I know he's real. He lives within my heart. Mm-hmm. I can't ju- How can I evaluate that? <laughs> how can I evaluate whether or not what's going on in your heart is true or mm-hmm. not? Instead, I and I don't want to say that people are singing that song and not not believing the gospel or whatever, but I'm just saying it's actually anchored in the written text. Mm-hmm. It's written in God outside of me, not the heart that I have or even my subjective apprehensions, because those can be wrong. Um, so we have to anchor them in things outside of ourselves. I think people were doing and falling into these things and embracing these teachings for sincere motives, maybe sometimes good motives, mm-hmm. but I think... They weren't the right, re- the right, this, there's actually a better solution to your problem, I think, yeah. than the one that, than, than the one they found. Yeah. Well, I mean, Robert Godfrey's list here is why is Pentecostalism attractive? And right. that one that we are, that we've been pointing out that Pentecostals know that God is present in felt, observable and powerful mm. expressions. Mm. I think that you could boil that down to it's exciting. Yeah. yeah. Yep, it's exciting, you know, right. and like if you're in the room at when that stuff is happening, it's just exciting. Right. And there's a lot going on and when you can see visible representations that are like that, I think people are just naturally attracted to that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And you know, <clears throat> over the years I've had quite a few friends that have are Pentecostal or grew up in a lot of assembly of God uh churches and I find that the common thread is like we believe in the gospel but it's the gospel plus mm. experience. It's the gospel plus this, you know, tongues or healing. And, it's, and it, it, it kind of <clears throat> takes away from, you know, the power of the, I mean, mm-hmm. Paul says it, you know, the, 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 I'm not ashamed for it's the power of the gospel. You know, it's right. that, that the gospel becomes, it's important. And I see that. I mean, I, I think that uh, Pentecostalism has that at its core. You need to, repent of your sins you right get saved but it's like you you need the gospel but you need these other things too right and that's where it's it gets very dangerous it sure does because then people get allured like well okay i'm a christian but i'm not speaking in tongues because i remember when i was in college that one of my good friends he actually had me because he grew up assembly god he said you said you need to receive the baptism of the holy spirit and i'm like i'm a new christian i came into college you know not even two years into my faith and I'm like, okay, you know, what does that mean? And he's like, you need to speak in tongues. And he actually had me move my mouth and make sounds. True, this is a Christian camp. You know, we were, I was, a, I was a, working at a Christian camp at the time. It was the summer after my sophomore year. And so I'm moving my mouth. He's like, now, just let the Holy Spirit take over. And, I'm, I, and my brain is trying to figure out, like, what, what, am, I, what am I supposed to do here? Because mm-hmm. I wasn't feeling anything, you know. And then he's like, okay, we'll, we'll work on it again. And I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, right. It kind of freaked me out. But I remember that experience because I'm like, you know, that's, that's not something you can just, at least in my mind that time, force. You know? And then, of course, as I learned and grew in my faith, I understood that's not really right. biblical. So that's where it gets dangerous. It's like, you're a Christian, but you got to do this now. Mm. So. Yeah, and every, every, everything like this is trying to meet a need. Um, or a felt need of sorts, and uh, the question is is whether or not it's actually meeting um, meeting the need. 
So Pentecostalism is a global reality, and in fact, um, it's huge internationally. Um, There's a chart here um, that shows, oh, let's see here. Um, So there are, this was in 2020, Pentecostals slash Charismatics. There are 68 million in North America, but there are 195 million Pentecostals and Charismatics in Latin America. 230 million in Africa. Um, So I believe, let me see if I can find this. Um, You know, it's interesting. So if you were to look here simply at evangelicals on the chart, which is close to the bottom, right? So by mid-2020, evangelicals are, this is global Christianity by tradition, right? Evangelicals are 387 million Protestants, if you just look at what Protestants are listed as, they're listed at 585 million. Pentecostals and Charismatics are listed at 644 million. So as a global movement, they have found, um, they have found a way to, and this goes back, I think, to the, all the various things that are, that, um, uh, why Pentecostalism is so attractive is because it's able to communicate in a simple and clear way an expression of the Christian faith that is powerful and observable and it offers tangible results or the possibility of those results, whatever results you judge that by, whether that just simply be an exciting worship service or if you want to press that to being wealthy and healed of all of my diseases. It offers more tangible results in this world um, for your Christian faith um, than other, I'm going to use the word, brands of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So, it's a it's a worldwide phenomenon, um, and definitely huge. I mean, I, didn't, I haven't seen anything that you have put in your packet about this, but it also seems to me, especially in those parts of the world, thinking about the Holy Spirit like that and that kind of activity in those felt, observable experiences, it almost seems like Christianity would be more syncretistic mm. in those cultures that like the native religions in those areas already have an understanding of spirits being alive and around and enter and you interact with those spirits. I I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It just seems like that would kind of make sense looking at the areas where Mm. it's definitely taken hold. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what to an extent that is in all those various areas, but I think that's probably a real possibility. Um, um, that that takes place. So four things, a couple things you should know about uh, Pentecostal theology. A bunch of this is already going to be known to our listeners, but um, we won't we won't go too long here. Um, so I mean, uh, it's very important right away to point out that one of the biggest uh, pe- a denomination that claims to be Pentecostal um, is uh, you need to be careful that some of them are oneness Pentecostal churches, and there's a whole list on this handout. Um, that I've given to the guys here of oneness Pentecostal denominations. These are do- these are denominations that are Pentecostal but reject the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, the Assemblies of God in 1916 adopted a strong Trinitarian stance and actually kicked out more than 160 ministers who taught these oneness Pentecostal views. So denominations today that would teach oneness Pentecostalism would be... Um, there's the United Pentecostal Church International, which has 1.5 million people worldwide. 
um, the United Church of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's there's other denominations there, but it's very important whenever you're talking to your Pentecostal friend to ask them. I think right away this basic distinct uh, ask them um, if they're a oneness Pentecostal or, or not, because right away you're going to know whether or not you're talking to someone who's even within the the basic realms of Christianity um, um, or not. The Assemblies of God lists four core beliefs on their website, and these correspond to A.B. Simpson's fourfold gospel, salvation, baptism in the Holy Spirit, divine healing, and the second coming of Christ. So salvation, they basically have a standard evangelical understanding of salvation. They do believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, evidenced by the speaking in tongues externally. Um, it's something to be sought by believers. It's, um, it, it can, they say it brings power for life and service um, and, and gives gifts to help you with your ministry um, and such. Um, there's also the talk about divine healing, which they believe is part of the gospel. In fact, one of their quotes from uh, their website, um, this is one of their uh from their website, they say divine healing is an integral part of the gospel. Deliverance from sickness is provided for in the atonement, and it is the privilege of all believers. So they believe in divine healing, and they also believe in the coming of Christ. And it seems it's explicitly premillennial um, and, uh, and such like that. Now, it's, it's fair to point out, however, that if we're talking about uh, Pentecostals, there's also a group of people that are called Charismatics, that come after Pentecostals. Um, these are people that would have been more, there would, you could have been a charismatic, but stayed within like the Roman Catholic church or the Episcopal church or any standard denomination. So whereas Pentecostal churches broke away and formed their own churches, it was possible to be a charismatic, but stay within the established denomination you were in. So you could stay in and be a charismatic Episcopalian or whatever. And then eventually there was a third wave movement with the uh, vineyard churches um, and such, um, which uh, were more, I guess, would it be fair to say, maybe more baby boomer generation um, guys like John Wimber and people like that um, and such. So there's other groups that fall underneath this, but we, have, we mainly know, know about the Pentecostals today, I guess. Um, any thoughts or comments before we wrap up with this? Any last comments on the denomination series? Well, John Wimber was in, I did a <clears throat> little bit of a study on him um, because, you know, that came out of the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. you know, and his whole thing was when he got saved at a revival, he was like, where, as he's reading Acts, he's like, where is this in the church? Mm. Where is, you know, Peter and, and James and saying, get up and walk in the name of Jesus, you know, like, and, and that was the, his whole thing. And that's what he created this kind of idea of like, let's, let's be like the, the Acts chapter, uh, the Acts church, you know, and that kind of took off and, and all that. So it's interesting. But then they broke away from the more radical, like the, the whole, um, I was in, was I in college or high school when that happened, the Toronto blessing. Oh yeah. Like yeah. people barking like dogs and <laughs> animals. And yeah. They actually denounced that and said, that's not part of us mm. and they broke off from so that. the toronto blessing people yeah were they a vineyard church yes. in toronto yep. that started they met in the part of the airport or something and they were yeah. part of the vineyard and then mm -hmm. vin and when that whole thing right. exploded they 
they say that's not a part of us and they right. they made them leave basically and um correct me if i'm wrong was calvary chapel somehow connected with the vineyard movement or something like that maybe not I don't know. I thought maybe yeah. they had some connections, but yeah, no. There's a whole, there's a whole nother, um I think they call that the third wave. Yeah, third. Um, yeah, with these these kinds of things, um, these movements and such. Okay. Any last thoughts, Tim? No. Scott, good series, Spencer. Thanks. Yeah. All right, it's not. I'm I'm done with this series. I'm I'm leaving it up to the other guys to come up with something because you know. Oh, to do your job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to do my job. That's twice today. <laughs> You've handed your job off to somebody else. That's okay. Empowerment, That's right? I appreciate that. Empowerment. I, I may just, next week we may just do a snake draft. Okay. I don't know. Something. For like topics? Yeah, I don't know. We all can just pick? We can all just pick which topics we want to do or our favorite theologians or something like that. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Charles Finney. <laughs> I mean, hey, come on. <laughs> John Wimber, fine. John Wimber. <laughs> yeah. Well, my favorite's a... Uh, never mind. We'll All come right. up with something. We'll come up with something. Maybe it's, somebody has something. They can tell Spencer be, at church. Yeah, it's going to be powerful. If they want to hear. I'm sure it won't be football. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Um, I'm going to try to make sure all the microphones are turned off now. Turn Dave's off first. All right. Thanks for listening. Take care. God bless.